the day, Walt Harrington. Let me make one observation before we delve into the material today. David, king of Israel, says in Psalm 19, he says, I delight in the law of God, more to be desired than anything else, sweeter than the honey in the honeycomb. David looked at the commandments of God, not as requirements that he had to meet in order to have a relationship with God. David looked at the commandments as an opportunity to learn how to delight the lover of his soul. And I suggest to you, gentlemen, that all believers fit into one of two categories. Either they view the commandments as being restrictive, and therefore they begin to walk around the fence, as it were, to see if there are any exits, any way to get out. These are a burden that God places on me. To have a relationship with Him, I've got to meet these burdens, but I hate them. Or you can, like King David, view the commandments of God as an opportunity to learn how to delight the one who loves you more than you even love yourself. And I don't know the difference in a man's heart on these matters. But I would suggest to you that if a man views the commandments of God restrictively, there's something terribly, terribly wrong in that relationship. If when I ask my wife to give me a cup of coffee, and she says to herself, oh, there he goes again, telling me what i got to do. I would say to you, I've got a marriage that is in problem. It's got problems. It, it needs attention. And so also with your relationship with God. Now let's get to the subject at hand. Those who set up the conference, I'm sure, knew before the fact that what I would be talking about would be rather redundant after the great presentation that Dave gave us on why would it work. Because the question, who meets my needs, is revolves around the issue of why I work. Whose needs am I trying to meet when I suit up and go to the office on Monday morning? So, I'll work my way through this material fairly quickly because, like I say, they've covered most of it. But it may surface some lingering questions that Dave would be free to answer for us. Uh, and, um, well, with that in mind, let's pray. Father, once again, we acknowledge 
are utter and complete dependence. Except you build a house. Except you work in our lives. Except you work in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. It's just not going to get done. And so I pray that you would guard my lips and keep me from acting like I did yesterday. I pray, God, that you'd protect these men from error and mistakes that I make. I pray, God, that you would glorify yourself. And in that glory, take us a little closer to yourself. For Jesus' sake, amen. Maslow, the psychiatrist or psychologist or whoever he was, said that there was a hierarchy of needs in every individual's life. The fundamental foundational need was physical. That is the most pressing of all needs. If a man is hungry or thirsty or freezing, that trumps all other needs he has in his life. He said, the next need is security. Security becomes paramount when his needs are met. Thirdly, he said, after those two needs are met, then the next most important need is the need of love. And then finally, self-acceptance, followed by self-realization or actualization. His thesis was that you had to have the earlier ones done before you could proceed to the latter ones. Now, I don't know if he's right. I'm not sure if you'd even agree with him. I mentioned this to you to call attention to the fact that, A, you have needs. Everybody has needs. To say you don't have needs is to not be thinking straight. And B, that these needs are God-given and therefore legitimate. There's nothing wrong with these needs. That's how God wired you. That's how God made you. The fundamental question, therefore, is in what direction are you going to look for the meeting of those needs? And I would suggest for your consideration that you have two fundamental directions you can look. You can say to yourself, I am responsible for the meeting of my own needs. Or you can say, God who created me is responsible for the meeting of those needs. Well, that's a fundamental basic choice that every individual forces and is forced to make in his life. So what I want to do is to explore with you the consequences of these two choices. The first I want to look at is we're going to assume that you are responsible for the meeting of your own needs. And let me point out to you that this is the assumption of psychology. It's assumption of life. I therefore ask, if you go this route, what can you expect? Following these assumptions, where are you led? And, again, I offer that you will 
find the following things. Number one, that your needs are insatiable and can never be met. Gentlemen, your needs are like a black hole. It doesn't matter how much you throw into it, it simply sucks it in and screams for more. So I use as an illustration food. Now obviously we are adequately fed here at this conference. But it doesn't matter how much food I ingest at any given meal, in just a matter of hours, I'm ready to belly up to the trough for one more try. <laughs> and what is true for food is true for money, is true for sex, is true for all three of those areas that Dave was talking about out of Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Now, because my needs are insatiable and can never be met, then I look for the meeting of them in more exotic ways. Let me remind you that the path to progress in the scientific realm is investigation and experimentation. And when you apply it to the moral realm, you produce ruin and all manner of hurt. But that is precisely what academia teaches us. That in the meeting of our needs, we've got to approach it much like we would approach any scientific project. Experimentation, investigation, and then you'll find out. But understand that going this route will never meet those needs. Any questions or comments? Yes, sir. Do you believe um, do you believe Maslow was correct in the hierarchy that he proposes, or do you believe that he's has it inverted? I'm not smart enough to answer that question. I have no I find no um, problem internally with it. My mind says it makes sense to me. Yeah, the, but again, the point was not do we agree or disagree, just to highlight the fact that we do have needs. But uh, I'll leave that to smarter guys than I to answer. Yes. Walt, you, when you first started, you mentioned that uh, we look to ourself or to God. Uh, but for me, I find that I look to other people, you know, like to meet my needs. Is I, that, you're probably going there, right? Well, I, I meant to say, didn't necessarily say it, but I meant to say that the meeting of my needs is my responsibility. How I meet them is the question. Okay. And or how that, I try to meet them. And then that might go to other people. Yeah. Okay. But, but the first point is that whatever direction you go in terms of meeting your own needs, you're going to find out that you perceive that your needs are insatiable. Knowing my great gift of ambiguity, any other questions?
The second thing you can count on, and that is the point that you just made, namely that you'll end up using people in your endeavor to meet your needs. Now, this was thumped very hard on several occasions in the earlier message. And I simply want to draw to your attention that there are few things in life as cruel and brutal as using other people to meet your needs. You see this in so many areas of life. Joe's got needs. Sue's got needs. Joe marries Sue to meet his needs. She marries Joe for the same reason. And you have yourself a first-class conflict as each tries to draw on the other for the meeting of their needs. And what happens in our promiscuous society as these two people become intimate with each other, they cannot help but compare their intimacy with their former relationships. And it becomes destructive in the relationship. And it all began because he was promiscuous, as was she, in endeavoring to meet her own needs and going around and finding people who would be willing to do that. This is where your generation is, my generation, our generation. This is modern man. There's no commitment in relationships. Sex has got to be perpetually erotic. My marriage has got to be perpetually romantic. If it isn't, I'll divorce her and get another one. Or, or better yet, why even go through the agony of marriage? Just move from bed to bed to bed to bed. After all, we've talked women into believing that they are our equal and therefore ought to have the right to go from bed to bed to bed. And with a pill or an abortion, we've affirmed that right. And so you have children who are trashed in the process. I would never have believed 40, 50 years ago that I had read in the newspaper that a girl had a baby and threw it in the trash and then went on to live her life. The newspaper pleads with these women. Take your baby to the fire station or to the police department. We won't arrest you, but don't do that to your child. And I ask myself, how can such unnatural affection grip the heart of an individual? I'm telling you, when you go to meeting your own needs, that is where you're going to end. Any questions or comments? Okay. Again, as Dave so carefully pointed out, that when we try to meet our own needs, we end up competing with our fellow man in the endeavor to try to meet our needs. So, keying off of what was said last hour, 
Society teaches us that our self-worth is wrapped up with our ability to compete successfully with other people. Now, I've asked myself the question, why are men so competitive? I have no license to rewrite, but let me offer a hypothesis. I suggest to you that men are competitive because every man knows that he's not as good as he wants to be. No man is as smart as he wants to be. No man is as uh, strong as he wants to be. No man is as gifted as he wants to be. And so, in order to satisfy his insecurity in not being the way he wants, he gains significance by at least being better than some other guy. I may not be very good, but I can sure whip you. Aren't I great? And gentlemen, it doesn't take a lot of intelligence to understand that if you hunt far enough and hard enough, you'll eventually find somebody you're better than. Now, for some of us, we have to make a long hunt out of it. But it can be done. Note with me that the only the secure can be humble. Insecure people have no ability to be humble. And by and large, competitors are not humble people. They got something to prove. Note with me further that there's nothing in the life of our Lord Jesus that even suggests a competitive edge to him. Let me know with you further that when you scour the Old Testament, there is nothing that God put into the economy of Israel that remotely approximates competition of any kind at all. Now, competing for the enjoyment of it, which few men do, is biblically permissible. But when you compete for any other reason, it is because you covet winning. And remember, gentlemen, covetousness is idolatry. Any questions or comments? That statement about only the secure can be humble, and we've heard a lot this weekend about how God wants us both to be secure and insecure. And uh, when I look at verses like Paul's where he says, nothing good dwells in my flesh, that to me seems synonymous with insecurity. And it seems like that produces humility as well. Yeah, good question. Let me just call to your attention Hebrews, I think it's around 13.6, quotes out of the Psalms, where he says, The Lord is my helper, therefore I will not fear what man can do to me. Jesus says, I think again in Matthew 10, around verse 28, if I remember correctly, 
Do not fear him who is able to destroy the body, but not the soul, but fear him who is able to send both to hell. The Bible says that I can be secure with you and therefore humble because my fear is in the direction of God. I know you can't hurt me. You may try. You may lie awake at nights dreaming of ways to pull it off. But God won't let you touch me. Unless it is his perfect will. So, I fear God because I know he's the one that controls my destiny. Therefore, I don't fear men. Therefore, I'm secure with my fellow man. And therefore, there is no reason why I should not be humble with them. Again, Bryce, we've talked about this before. Let's just review it just for a moment. It's Bible 101. If we confess before God that we're nothing, then it shouldn't bother us when people agree. Yes. It's my understanding that Christ calls us to meet the needs of other people. Is it because that is the end result of this whole process? Because I am secure, that leads to humility, therefore I can actually go and meet someone else's needs? Yes. Yeah. I'll mention it here, we'll probably touch again on it in a moment. That does not mean that God does not use people to meet my needs. To be very honest with you, and those of you who know me can say amen to this, my wife meets my needs in an incredible manner. Where I come from, we don't think much of a man if he can't marry above himself. And men agree, I did marry way, way above myself. So yes, she meets my needs. But God help me if I look to her for the meeting of those needs. That's God's choice. That's not mine. It's a one-way street. Good questions. Yes, Joseph. Um, I'm confused a bit. Paul seems to be thinking in competitive terms. Uh, several issues where he's talking about how he buffets his body and disciplines himself. And toward the end of his life, where he says, I've run a good race, um, etc., uh, it seems like his whole life at the bookends, at least when he mentions it, yes. is defined by competition. Another excellent question. Yes, 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 yes. But understand that the Apostle Paul wasn't competing against you. He was competing against himself. Lest by any means after I have run the race, I should become disqualified. Not lose to Joseph, but become disqualified. That is, I ran the race, breaking the rules, and the coach, the judge, says, 
you're out of the race. He says, that's what terrifies me. So at the end of the life, he says, I'm done. I did it. I don't know about you, my brother, but my goal in life is to finish the race without being in a major embarrassment to God. Dan. Another question on competition. Can you address it in relation to sports today? Like, especially the young kids that are these very competitive sports teams. And what the, what the Christian attitude should be. All I can say, the Bible never speaks to competition as being bad, green, or purple. All I can say is that when it spills over into covetousness, when in athletics you see a grown man sit down on the bench and cry, you know that it's because he was competing because he coveted the prize and he lost. I remember my kids went through this. And they would lose and they would feel terrible. And I would say, you've got to learn to be a good sport. I got thinking about that. And I thought to myself, being a good sport means not that you don't care. You care like crazy. Being a good sport means you pretend like you don't care. <laughs> so, I can't take it beyond that. Okay? The fourth thing we can count on is that we'll anger God because He says that He wants to meet our needs. And again, by way of review, if you don't think that God will adequately meet your needs, meet your expectations, as Dave quoted from Psalm 62.5, you what will happen is you will use people. And note again with me that six of the Ten Commandments are a prohibition against using people to meet your needs. Why do men steal? Because they perceive that their needs are not being adequately met and they go to illegal lengths to meet those needs. Why does a man fornicate or commit adultery? Same reason. Jesus said, But the whole of the law is summarized in love God and love your neighbor. And if you're trying to meet your own needs, gentlemen, you will not be able to do either. Either love God or love your neighbor. Any question or comment? Okay, then let's briefly look at 
the fact, what do we count on if we look to God to meet our needs? Well, if that's true. Again, Dave quoted out of Philippians 4.19. That's his assertion. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. I was talking to a man about God meeting his needs once. And it was the same point that Dave pointed out this morning. He says, oh, Hendrickson, that's the, that is the problem, isn't it? I said, how is that? God gets to decide what my needs look like. Gentlemen, that is the Garden of Eden. Who gets to decide what is good for you and what is evil for you? God says, I want good for you. And Satan says, <laughs> he gets to decide what it looks like, though. You don't get to decide that. Eat of the fruit, and it's your decision. And that lust is irresistible. Any questions or comments? Um, how do I reconcile God saying that he'll meet my needs food and clothing and then maybe he doesn't? Yeah. See, precisely. That is exactly the point. That is exactly the point. What if he doesn't? As a matter of fact, I can demonstrate to you places where he hasn't. We looked at thousands of them last night in Dan's presentation, didn't we? So, let's say a hypothetical case. Let's say that you and I, and, and we, won't, we won't go to India this time, let's go to Somalia. We go down there to Somalia, and here's a man who's starving to death. As a matter of fact, he's so far gone that there's nothing we can do to revive him. He has prior buried his four children and his wife. All died of starvation. Now, these are men... And women who follow Christ, they love God with a passion. And they look with their vacuous eyes at you and say, Tell me what Philippians 4.19 means. God's meeting my needs. How is God meeting my needs? Let's go back and review Matthew chapter 6. Where God says, I'll provide for you. Is God providing for me? And gentlemen, how do you answer the question? Is it that you, you can't judge God based on the circumstances? Well, God, you can't God, judge God's faithfulness due to the circumstances? Winston and I have a friend who says that if your doctrine doesn't preach in the ghetto, it isn't biblical. I think he's right. You'd better have an answer to that question. If you can't answer biblically that man's question, you go go back and review the issue and the facts. Yes, Hesse. 
In uh, Timothy 6, Paul writes, if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Does that give somebody license for um, to be not content with God if they don't have those things? Well, here's the guy. So hot, he doesn't care about the clothing. He lives in filth, and he's starving to death. How would you coach him? If he asked you that question, if he says, Hessel, I've, I've, I've memorized First Timothy 6. I know the verses. I don't have food and clothing. Do I have a right to be discontent? And you would say, yeah. Any other questions? So how did you answer the Somalian man? Question. <laughs> yeah. It's the Garden of Eden again, isn't it? Who gets to decide what is good for you and what is evil for you? And if I'm comfortable, I'm more than happy to let God make those decisions. But when I perceive that my needs are not being met, then God and I have an issue. So, it's a fundamental question that every man's got to answer in his own life. If I'm going to look to God to meet my needs, then am I going to let God determine what those needs look like. If not, then don't pretend that you're looking to God to meet the needs. Yes? So, in the Somalian guy answer, you know, can you suggest to a person like that that if they are in fact looking towards God to meet their needs, that where they are and what they have is exactly what God has decided for them? Yes. What other answer do you have? Either he doesn't exist, or he's cruel, or he's impotent. What are the choices? Dan was talking about his session with the pastors in India. And he made the observation that there are two verities that have to be firmly embedded in a man's being in order to look to God to meet his needs. That is, that God is in control, that is, he's sovereign, and that he is good. That is, he has my best interests at heart. If you don't believe these, you'll never have a satisfactory relationship with God. You'll always be at war with him. Yes, Joseph. Coming back to the needs, um, do we determine that if you have a felt need, well, let me go to first person. Uh, if I have a need that I desire and I put it in front of God and God doesn't answer or answers in the negative, was that not a need? You thought it was? Obviously. 
The problem is, did God agree with you? I don't know if God is agreeing with me, uh, saying that need or the answer to that need. Well, gentlemen, again, Bible 101. This is a review. God does not exist for you. You exist for God. He created you for his own good pleasure. He didn't create you for your good pleasure. You exist to please him as his obedient slave. Now, you don't have to be a slave if you want. You can be the slave of sin and go to hell if you'd like. But if you become his slave and it's purely voluntary, then he makes the call from that point on. And gentlemen, he may call you his son, but in reality, you are nothing more than chattel. You accrue no rights when you become a Christian. And if you think you have rights going into the Christian life, I'm here to tell you, you're going to experience a great deal of hurt. Any questions? By the way, well, remember now, God has given me the uh, gift of encouragement. <laughs> when's, that, yeah, when's that happening? Um, no, to the, to the rights thing. If you go over into Romans, and that we earn the right to be called sons of God, children of God. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Jesus said, Henceforth, I call you not slaves, I call you friends. For the slave doesn't know what the master does, but everything that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. John fifteen fifteen, or somewhere in that neighborhood. And I call to your attention the fact that that is what Jesus called them. That is not what they called themselves. Paul doesn't write, Paul, the friend of God. Paul writes, Paul, the slave of God. And in those days, infamous days, when we had slaves in our nation, it was not uncommon at all for a master to consider the slave his closest confidant. Treated him as a son, as a brother, as a friend. <laughs> but that slave was always chattel. It can never be otherwise. If God calls you his child, be grateful. If he calls you his friend, rejoice. But don't ever call yourself that. You are his slave. And if you slip into the mindset that because of your relationship with God, you have certain privileges. You're going to hurt, get hurt. You're going to get hurt awfully bad. Yes, sir. So does that does that mean that God is sometimes more like us than? We realize, meaning 
let's say you said we yearn for food, right? We can't get enough of it. Now, if God isn't as much like us, then why would he need more than one slave? Unless he continues to yearn for the ple- for us to work in his pleasure. Let me ask you a question, mm-hmm. my brother. Who gets to define good? Is it an objective standard that you and God both meet? I don't understand. Who defines justice? Who defines righteousness? Who defines good? Who makes the decision that this is good and that is bad? Somebody's got to make the decision. Of course, yeah. Who does? Is it an objective standard? Who has the, who has the final say on Absolutely. what's good? Well, obviously God, but if the, I mean, some people think that something's good and some people think that the same thing is bad. Right. But you're saying the final decision, yeah, of course. It's the golden rule. Yeah. He who has the gold makes the rule. <laughs> justice is, as the philosopher said in Greece, justice is the interest of the stronger. Again, men, we've reviewed this before in the past, but every man's fundamental problem with God is that God got there first. And it ticks him off. Most anger in your life, when you analyze it, comes down to your disagreeing with God over how he's running the universe. Yes, sir. Well, how about the tremendous anger, you know, that I feel watching television, let's say, and uh, something that's just from a human point of view, finite point of view, something like, you know, the the atrocity committed to a to a little innocent girl before even. She's she's done any you know lived enough life to to really do anything wrong just yeah. crimes against innocence and so forth and reconciling that with the will of God I mean I try to tell myself I think the essence of what you're saying in that is that if we understood that we would be God and we'd need to just simply and very simply submit to His will and just say I, I don't know I can't pretend to know can't explain it can't pretend to explain it. Is that the right philosophy, or is there something more to assuage the kind of the anger that you feel for some of these issues? Help. You rightly feel the anger. Like Dan talked about that little girl in the picture, the likes of which is captured, kidnapped, arm chopped off, eye poked out, and made a slave of somebody who goes, that little girl goes around and begs, and the people live off of her. I think to myself, you know, I've got problems meeting God. I'm sure glad I'm not there. However, nobody is going to meet God in the face 
and say to God, you owe me. Nobody is going to die and meet God and say that my circumstances were abysmal, rotten. The only thing, gentlemen, the only thing you're going to regret when you die, period, the only thing, is your own sin and unbelief. Nothing else. Men, who destroyed Job? Do you really believe that? That's what it says. Where does it say it? Okay, chapter 2, verse 3, Dan. Yes. And God said to Satan, Satan, have you observed my servant Job? He's an upright man, one that fears God and hates evil. And you incited me to destroy him for no cause. God says, I destroyed. I destroyed Job. Now, for all of Job's faults, Job understood that. In the rest of the book, he never blames Satan, never blames the weather, never blames the Chaldeans. He says, God, my problem's with you. And when God and Satan meet, God says, you're absolutely right. Now, tell me exactly what is your question. And at the end of the matter, Job says, come to think of it, I'm an idiot. I don't have any questions. Now, gentlemen, if you're going to look to God for the meeting of your needs, you have got to factor that into the equation. He gets to decide. And if you don't really believe that, then you will mouth that God is meeting my needs and practice using other people to meet your needs. I learned a long time ago in my life that it's easier to trust God with money in the bank than the opposite. And the moment of truth is when there's no money. It's when I'm in pain. It's when my little girl got kidnapped. It's when my wife got killed. Where were you, God? It was right there. Any questions or comments? Well, gentlemen, if this is not part of the fiber of your being, you'll never look to God for the meaning of your needs. I can promise you that. I'm neither a prophet nor the son of the prophet, but I can tell you for sure that is going to be true. Now, in all candor, none of us live here consistently. All of us backslide. All of us have to take, on occasion, long walks around the block 
and say, now God, let me review it one more time with you. Who am I and who are you? In your endeavor to make it part of your life, let me suggest to you the following things. If I can find my crib sheet here. First of all, before you leave the conference, nail down A, the fact that you exist for God and you are His obedient slave, that He is in control and that He is good. If that is not in place, you can go no further in this matter. So settle it and settle it once for all. If you don't, then you'll relegate application to a do list to the profound neglect of an inner transformation. And your do list will be within the parameters of your own comfort level. Number two, awareness. You've got to be aware. Have you ever noticed people tend to repeat themselves with certain phrases? You know? You know what I mean? The guy says that, you know what I mean? You know? He says that, you know? He, he says it again, you know? And the problem is, you know, he never realizes he's saying, you know? You know? <laughs> and before he can solve his problem, he has got to be aware of his problem. So awareness is key after you lay the foundation. And let me help you by suggesting to you that the awareness is in the word disappointment. Let that be your key. The moment you find yourself disappointed, you know you're heading on that road. Because disappointment is ingratitude. And ingratitude is taking exception with God on how he's running his universe. And then number three. Make a covenant with God that by his grace you'll look to him and him only for the meeting of your needs. Any questions or comments? Yes, Joseph. Another one-on-one question, I'm sure, but um, if I am the slave of God, um, and you mentioned that God desires to meet my needs, why? Because he's good. Where does he say he wants to meet my needs? In terms of Philippians 4.19. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said it himself. But only as he sees them. (laughs) Exactly. But that's true with our children also. Son, I'll meet your needs. Dad, I'll tell you what my need is. A Ferrari. I need a Ferrari. (laughs) Son, 
No, you don't. Well, I disagree with you, Dad. I really need that. It never happens, son. That's life. Yes. Is there such thing as legitimate disappointment? A good thing, such thing as what? Legitimate disappointment. I think so. I hope so. And that's disappointment with myself. Never with another person? No, I, I, would, I would agree. I would agree with that. I think that when a person breaks the commandment of God, it starts to peel off. I'm, I'm keenly disappointed. As a matter of fact, I grieve over that. Good question. Realizing that I have fully demonstrated my gift of encouragement, is there anything else that I could say of an uplifting manner? On the question of legitimate disappointment, can we legitimately expect anything out of one who is dead in their trespasses and sins? I can't remember. Was it you, Jerry, that said in your talk that the message of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is that we should not judge the Philistines? That's not our job. Now, when a man breaks the law of the land, then he's got to answer to the, the courts. But I should not expect Philistines to act like saints, says Paul. They're Philistines. They need Jesus. And when I expect them to act like saints, I'm expecting them to act in a way that I freely admit that I would never have acted like before I met Christ. So it's hypocritical and it's unfair. And again, with that happy thought, Winston. One. Well, how about expectations of the uh, of the pagan on issues where they have made commitments? Yes. Yeah. Well said. That, I, I missed missed that for sure. That we can expect a man to keep his word. Yes. Thank you. Good point. Well, gentlemen, like you said, good luck. (laughs) 